0: You're listening to The Diplomats podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City, and I'm joined today by a familiar voice on the podcast by someone who hasn't joined the show for a while. Uh, I'm happy to welcome Katie Putz, the managing editor of The Diplomat. Thanks for joining me, Katie.
1: Thank you very much for having
0: me on. Absolutely, and uh, what a week to have you on because there is a lot going on in Central Asia. Um, and for better or worse, uh, sadly, one of the stories does involve a terror attack in Tajikistan that I want to talk to you about today. Um, but for better or worse, we, uh, you know, really should be devoting more attention to Central Asia. And um, now I think you know there are a couple topics that we have talked about before. I think last time we had you on, we talked about reform in Uzbekistan, which is something that you've been writing about a lot uh, at the uh, Crossroads Asia channel for The Diplomat. Uh, But today, I want to talk to you about Tajikistan uh, with the new uh, Islamic State claimed attack there. Um, Maybe we can probe a bit. Uh, Certainly, the government's had an interesting reaction. Uh, We can talk a bit about that. Um, And then the second story that I want to talk about uh, that I think uh, is also geopolitically quite significant is the resolution of a uh, trial in Kazakhstan involving a Chinese citizen of Kazakh ethnicity. Uh, so we'll we'll get to that in the second part of the discussion, but I'm uh, looking forward to chatting with you today, Katie.
1: Me too. I think there's been a lot going on in Central Asia this week, and, and uh, a lot of it ties into larger, as you said, geopolitical currents. So there's there's definitely a lot to discuss.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. So let's start with Tajikistan. Uh, so on July 30th, uh, the Islamic State's uh, news agency, Amok officially claimed responsibility for a uh, vehicular attack that ended up killing four foreign um, tourists uh, who were biking around uh, in uh, the countryside. And uh, the Tajik government, in the meantime, uh, has chosen really to ignore that. And as far as I know, they're blaming it. On the, surprise, surprise, the Islamic Renaissance Party of Tajikistan, the IRPT, uh, which is an opposition party that's banned in the country. Um, so Katie, I guess let's start first with the uh, Islamic State claim on the attack. Uh, so I know you you covered this attack like pretty much as soon as it broke. Uh, so were you surprised when it was claimed by the Islamic State?
1: Um, I wasn't necessarily surprised. If you, uh, you know, I'm far from somebody who jumps to conclusions early. Um, But fairly soon after the attack, uh, the initial report said this was a road accident, which anybody who's ever been in Central Asia would probably agree um, is very reasonable because there are lots of road accidents. Mm -hmm. Um, But it became evident fairly quickly that this was deliberate. Uh, RFERL acquired uh, footage reportedly showing the attack that showed the car running into the cyclists and then turning around to run over them again. So it was very clear that it was deliberate. Um, And then you kind of move on to, well, if this was deliberate, then why? Um, And there are a range of reasonable uh, possible theories to the crime essentially. Um, But uh, I think Islamic State certainly popped up quickly. Um, In 2017, there was a whole slew of very, very similar uh, truck and car attacks. Uh, There was one in Ohio. There was one in Berlin. There was one in Stockholm. There was one in New York there was one in barcelona there was a number of, of vehicular uh, attacks of this kind and it rooted back to uh, a an islamic state publication that essentially said this is a very um, good way to go and attack westerners because right. cars are cars are ubiquitous right there's nothing strange about somebody driving a car down a street right. um and so the tactic itself looked very similar to an entire trend so when the islamic state comes out and claimed it it, it added another sort of notch in the column of okay this is very possibly could be um, the Islamic State uh, inspired or directed. Um, And then the next day, the Islamic State released uh, a video uh, purporting to show the five of the five gentlemen um, involved in this attack um, pledging allegiance to ISIS in front of a black flag. Uh, The men in the video resembled uh, men that the Tajik government said were responsible for this attack. They had published photos of these people. Um, And so you know, the, the notches in the Islamic State column were adding up. Um, and so I think that's a reasonable um, sort of conclusion. What that doesn't tell us is uh, how, it, whether this was inspired or directed. If you look at some of the other vehicular attacks, particularly the one in New York um, and Stockholm, which were both Central Asians also, those are sort of self-radicalized online. There wasn't somebody back in ISIS headquarters directing these. These were inspired by Islamic State propaganda. And and in my opinion, that seems to be what happened here.
0: Right, right. I think, yeah, I think that's pretty likely. And that's the Islamic State's model. You know, they Mm -hmm. make it very easy to become a franchisee, so to speak, and pledge your allegiance remotely and become a, quote-unquote, soldier of the caliphate, which I think is what Amak referred to these guys as. Yes. Um, So, yeah, so I think... Uh, You know, I'm right there with you. I think uh, Islamic State does seem to be the perpetrator. But Katie, let's talk a bit about the government's reaction, uh, which I know you have a few thoughts on. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So why are they blaming the Islamic Renaissance Party?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I think it was around Wednesday after the Islamic State had released this video. So sort of the Islamic State's making their case that we did this. uh, The Tajik government had Uh, on monday had said they were considering all the options but i really think they had kind of made up their mind Um, and they said that the irpt with uh training provided by iran had planned this um and if you look back at sort of the political situation in tajikistan some of our listeners probably don't know the nuances of Tajik politics which is perfectly fine the irpt um, was a parliamentary party Um, from the late 90s through 2015. In 2015, it lost the two seats it had in parliament. Um, Footnote, no election in Tajikistan has been judged free or fair, so it's unclear whether they lost those two seats because they didn't have support or because the government finally wanted to fully get rid of its opposition. And then by the end of the year, uh, the party had been banned. Uh, Most of its leaders had been arrested or had fled into exile, mostly in Europe. And they were labeled a terrorist organization. Uh, As far as I know, no other country has labeled them as a terrorist organization. Uh, The leader of the party uh, gained asylum in a European country. A number of the other party leaders are are spread mostly throughout Europe with asylum. They've been, the Tajik government put a whole bunch of people um, up on Interpol's red notice list, and most of them have been taken off um, as they started uh, analyzing uh, the, the sources of these claims. Um, the IRPT has never been linked to an actual extremist attack. Um, it's when it was a political party, it was in opposition to the government, but it's never advocated the violent overthrow of the government. Um, it's fallen very much into uh, a democratic camp. Um, and so I think for the Tajik government, the IRPT has long been its boogeyman, um, Back in the Civil War days, uh, the IRPT was a part of the opposition, and so that, um, in in sort of a continuation of the struggles from that era, trying to like get rid of any possible source of opposition to the the government's power, and the IRPT is the perfect sort of target, um, in particular because of in in sort of in Western discourse, our sort of discomfort in Islamism and Islamic politics, it kind of feeds itself to kind of saying, hey, these guys are they're Islamists, they're bad, they're definitely definitely behind this. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, without sort of critical evaluation of whether there's the capability or the motivation, certainly nothing the party has ever said publicly supports this kind of thing. The party immediately denounced this attack, uh, said these guys were not members. Um, and, it, you know, it. it uh, I, I think the Tajik government... Said this, maybe hoping nobody would notice. I have no idea why they thought that they, that that people are going to get away with this claim. Um, <laughs> I do want to point. I do want to point out the Tajik government hasn't said that it wasn't the Islamic state. That has overwhelmingly put forward that it's the IRPT. So certainly, at some point, they might make the argument the IRPT and ISIS are in cahoots with each other, right. which make which makes no sense if they also say the IRPT is in cahoots with Iran, because that would mean that Iran and ISIS are working together, which also makes no sense. Yeah, I was going to um, actually
0: ask you about the <laughs> Iran claim. So what you know, what is kind of the geopolitical reason behind throwing kind of Iran in there as the guys who are training these supposed IRPT militants?
1: Yeah, so that's, that's a really interesting kind of multifaceted um, answer uh, to that question. So Tajikistan and Iran um, share a lot of sort of cultural heritage. The Tajik language is a derivative of Persian. Um, there's a lot of sort of shared history. So they had long been allies, despite uh, a religious difference. Most Muslims in Tajikistan are Sunni. Iran is a Shia state. Um, despite that, They got along just fine for the longest time. But Tajikistan has kind of fallen into the larger uh, conflagration between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia has kind of moved in and is providing a lot of aid to Tajikistan Um, and Iran. On the other hand, uh, the year that the IRPT was being shunted out of Tajikistan, um, I think it was in like December, they hosted um, a, a large Islamic conference and sat the IRPT representatives who had been labeled as terrorists by this Tajik government, next to the official Tajik delegation. Um, and so that really, really ticked off Duchenne Bay. Um, and so since then, there's been a very serious sort of tension between Iran and Tajikistan, um, fed in a large part by Saudi Arabia, essentially moving into what was an Iranian ally. Mm, um, okay. and so, And so because Iran essentially refused to go along with labeling the IRPT a terrorist group, um, has hosted its leader, has, has you know, is kind of like the rest of the world has not accepted the fact that the IRPT um, are extremists, because they don't, certainly don't seem to be, and not in the conversations I've had with, with their spokesmen and with, with members. Um, but it's certainly the iran Tajikistan relationship has fallen victim to the larger Iran, Saudi Arabia contest for power and influence across the sort of larger Muslim world, I would say.
0: Got it. Well, that's that's really interesting. We should really dig into that maybe another time uh, and talk a bit more about that. I'm actually writing a, uh, I've been you know spending the last year actually working on a paper for USIP about Pakistan's role in mm-hmm. that sort of struggle, and there are actually some interesting links to Afghanistan and Central Asia that I think make this bigger picture I think something worth highlighting. You don't really yeah. read a lot about this, but it's, I think, quite interesting. Yeah, Um, it's
1: definitely kind of a niche uh, topic and you don't you don't necessarily notice it unless you're following like mm -hmm. who's funding the building of large mosques and things like that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Last question before we move on to Kazakhstan. Um, So, you know, we know that in Afghanistan, obviously, the Islamic State has been quite active uh, in the northern provinces that borders Tajikistan, Badakhshan. Uh, It was just Mm -hmm. one example. Um, do you see that sort of, um, do you see this attack having anything to do with kind of ongoing dynamics with the Islamic state in Afghanistan, or is this sort um, of a separate beast?
1: I think right now we have to say it's a separate beast. And unfortunately, I'm not certain we're ever going to really find out, mm-hmm. um, because, because the Tajik government seems to want to follow this IRPT notion. Uh, I think it's not seriously considering the, the Islamic state connection and mm-hmm. asking the serious questions of how were these guys radicalized? were they given instructions if so from whom you know so it's sort of if uh the inspiration for this came from your general sort of online radicalization amorphous um osmosis of terrorist ideology um then that's one thing but if this came from across the border that's another issue and we have i have absolutely no way of knowing that without serious investigation by the Tajik authorities but there i I just don't see them doing that Mm -hmm. um I haven't seen anything that uh, establishes a link between this attack and anything happening in Afghanistan, um, but, you know, I, I don't know, and I'm unfortunately I don't know that we're going to find that out.
0: Okay. Well, you know, I think uh, just highlighting that uncertainty is also definitely worthwhile as a, as a point of analysis. <laughs> um well okay i think we'll that will wrap up the uh tajikistan discussion there um but i want to talk to you now about um developments between uh, kazakhstan and china uh, so you've been reporting in some detail at the diplomat on the uh the trial of um sarah a uh kazakh an, an ethnic kazakh chinese citizen uh who mm-hmm. was charged with illegally crossing the border family uh, in Kazakhstan. And uh, this trial was dramatic. And, uh, you know, you uh, said a diplomat that the result was um, basically a pleasant surprise. Um, so I'm guessing most of our listeners, again, uh, maybe didn't follow this trial. Uh, so can you just tell us a bit about the circumstances of the case and what was really at stake here?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, first, just a little bit of deeper background. So mm-hmm. the Kazakh people of old were nomads. So when modern country borders, we can being drawn across eurasia some kazakhs ended up in what is now china xinjiang um, there's a kazakh autonomous prefecture within xinjiang um, and when kazakhstan became independent uh, its titular ethnicity was not the majority ethnicity in the state that was russians at the mm. time of independence as russians outmigrated, kazakhstan essentially invited its diaspora to return uh, made it relatively easy for them to get kazakh citizenship so there were, thousands of families sort of split across the Chinese-Kazakh border. You know, uh, ethnic Kazakh Chinese citizens in Xinjiang, their children moved to Kazakhstan to work jobs, became Kazakh citizens. They go back and visit their grandparents in China. And this wasn't really a problem until relatively recently. Right. Uh, there, was, there was a change in leadership in Xinjiang and in a very concerted effort um, to uh, uh, I guess the Chinese would probably say, politically educate uh, the Muslims of Xinjiang about the Chinese state. Um, most of us would say these are essentially re-education or internment camps um, that have been sent, set up, mostly Uyghurs who have been sent to them, but there have been a good number of, of ethnic Kazakhs who have also been pack- packaged up to these camps. And so that brings us to um, Seiragul Sakpai, and she, was, uh, she is an ethnic Kazakh Chinese citizen. She'd been working in Xinjiang as a kindergarten teacher. Um, and was. I, I read some of the reports cited that she was even a Communist Party member. Um, her husband and her two children had been living in Kazakhstan for two years, and they had obtained Kazakh citizenship last year. Um, in early 2018, Safai was transferred uh, to teaching at one of the political re-education camps. Right. Um, and she, uh, her passport was confiscated. The Chinese authorities tried to persuade her to have to get her to family to return. And so in April, she illegally crossed the border into Kazakhstan. And in May, she was arrested by Kazakh authorities. The Chinese wanted her deported back to China. The trial really became such a huge event, uh, in the large part, because she was speaking in open court about these camps, which the Chinese government has denied the existence of. And so, you know, when she's Sitting in, in court and saying, you know, they call them political re-education camps, but they're actually prison camps in the mountain filled with, you know, over 2,000 Kazakhs at three separate camps. Then there were gasps in the court reportedly to that. Um, this became a, a much larger issue. Um, and so, interestingly, her, her lawyers uh, didn't, nobody tried to contest the fact of the crime. She crossed the border illegally. Uh, what they did say was that if you send her back, she will disappear. Um, she's essentially spouting what Beijing considers state secrets in an open courtroom. You can't send her back. And so the trial ended this week. Um, and she was released on a suspended sentence. No threat of deportation. Uh, the The judge even said in her sort of sentencing uh, that the crime of crossing the border illegally couldn't really be considered serious because it was the only way for her to reunite with her family. Right. And so, this was like a remarkable... The, the Kazakh justice system does not always deliver a humanitarian outcome. Um, and this really was a good outcome for this case. Mm-hmm. Um, so does she get citizenship
0: in Kazakhstan now?
1: You know, uh, I haven't seen that as an automatic thing, but I would not be surprised if in a year or two... I, mm-hmm. what, what, what the ruling was was for a six-month suspended sentence. Um, so she was released from jail... Um, and essentially told to check in with the police on occasion. So I think they'll essentially keep tabs on her, but she can go live with her family. um i, I would I would anticipate her becoming a Kazakh citizen at some point. Um certainly, her remarks after the uh, verdict was read out and she walked out of the courtroom were about you know how wonderful Kazakhstan is and how nice it is to be among her people. so I, I can't see the Kazakhs not giving her citizenship
0: at some point, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so, the geopolitics of all this seem rather complicated because the Kazakh government did have to broach China about this uncomfortable topic uh, that China just certainly doesn't want to talk about. And the Chinese reaction, as far as I can tell, has been muted, uh, effectively silent, mm-hmm. uh, not really addressing this. So I hope that, you know, this happy ending... Um, sticks. Uh, but, you know, then I, I wonder if there are sort of now back-channel efforts in China to try to win deportation or extradition or something like that. Um, yeah. Obviously, that'd be dramatic, but, you know, it could cause a major bilateral issue. I mean, uh, based on the reporting that you've done, it doesn't seem like that's happening, and the Kazakhs have been actually quite successful in approaching China about this. Um, but is that is that going to hold?
1: Yeah. So on the, on the larger issue of the camps in Xinjiang, the Kazakh government has been fairly successful in quietly lobbying for Kazakh citizens who were accidentally detained in these camps to be returned and, and, and let go. Um, but Austin has done this very quietly through diplomatic channels and has not made large public statements about it, what they would probably call internal matters in China. That said... Um, there's a considerable undercurrent of of anti-Chinese sentiment in Kazakhstan, and it comes with a lot of the development issues and a lot of other things, Um, but it doesn't extend to the government's um, policies in terms of economic policies and political relations, but I think it does impact how they manage um, various issues Uh, because Astana realizes that this anti-Chinese sentiment um, can really... Spark trouble, um, and we saw that in 2016 there were nationwide protests because there were rumors that changes to the land code would allow Chinese to buy up large swaths of Kazakh land. And so you saw large protests in 2016 sparked by an anti-Chinese rumor. It's very reasonable for Astana to, who have looked at this case and said, well, you know, if this goes badly, we could have a serious problem. Kazakhs were watching this case. The court was open. People were reporting on this. There were live blogs. Like This was a very intensely watched case. And so if it had gone the other way, right. uh, Kazakhstan could have had... Uh, I would have expected demonstrations. Right. I don't think they would have been super huge um, just because of the security concern, like personal security concerns that go with demonstrating in Kazakhstan. But I think there would have been public outcry that... Kazakhstan had chosen China over the Kazakhs um, and so when you look at this particular case from that 30,000 foot view you start to see some of the rough edges between Central Asia and China um, I don't anticipate um, her being deported at a later time to China I think that would um, engender a huge backlash yeah um, I I'm curious to see how the Chinese, retaliate for this or respond to this. They certainly could write this off as essentially a necessity on the Kazakh state's part for its own security. But I don't know that, I don't know if the Chinese will be that generous about it. Um, so we'll see how this, I, I haven't seen any response um, as as we would think we talked before the po- podcast, um, the Chinese have not really commented on this and and probably won't with the idea that if you don't talk about it, it will go away. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I it certainly has a lot to say about the Kazakh Chinese relationship and 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 that sort of thing.
0: Right, right. And I think you know, and like this is a transnational issue because of the various ethnic groups uh, apart from Uyghurs that are getting caught up in the reeducation camp, uh, Dragnet, and Xinjiang. Um, mm-hmm. You know, one other thing I'll just say about this is that this um, you're absolutely right that the open discussion of the practices in these camps. Uh, in a Kazakh court was quite interesting. And it's actually been interesting to me uh, how, relatively speaking, uh, in the West, this has not really gotten major pickup. I think the Financial Times did a good report on in a few other places, but I haven't really seen sort of top-level coverage from a lot of the major Western newspapers who have been Mm -hmm. otherwise paying attention uh, increasingly over the last year to the issue of the crackdown in Xinjiang and the re-education camps. Uh, so So that'll be interesting to see if this actually does end up snowballing and sort of sparking uh more scrutiny of of the practice that china's employing there
1: i think i think one thing to watch is whether this is repeated um because Mm -hmm. as i as i said earlier there are thousands of families split over the chinese kazakhstan border um and so this is likely not the only case of a family in kazakhstan that has a relative in china who has disappeared likely into one of these camps and so does this case set a precedent that if you can make it to Kazakhstan, you can stay? Um, or Because in, in the past, Kazakhstan has been perfectly fine with deporting Uyghurs that China wanted returned. Really, no questions asked. Um, all of Central Asia has been fairly comfortable with sending back Uyghurs. But when it comes to their own ethnic, ethnic groups, uh, in Kazakhstan's case, in this particular instance, they've clearly gone the other way. And so... I would be curious to see if this gets repeated um, because I I I can't believe that she is the only person in this situation.
0: Right. Absolutely. Um, well, Katie, thank you so much for that context on, on really um, both those topics today.
1: Oh, well, thank you very much for having me on. You know I love... Going on about Central Asia. Yeah,
0: absolutely. No, <laughs> and you know we really don't uh, do Central Asia as much as we should on the Asia Geopolitics podcast, and it's been a really big push for us, the Diplomat, over the past three years. So, hoping to have you on more frequently to talk about other topics in the region. Um, but before um, before we end, um, do you want to tell our listeners about the latest issue of the magazine that just went out a few days ago?
1: Yes. So, the forty fifth issue of the Diplomat magazine uh, just hit digital newsstands. Um, Our cover story is by Aidan Foster Carter, who is just a wonderful analyst, great guy, um, focusing on North Korea and North Korean diplomacy from the North Korean perspective. A lot of what we see analyzing sort of the international politics of the North Korea issue, but not what is the motivation for North Korea to essentially make this titanic shift from absolute bellicosity to diplomatic engagement. Um, And then we have a number of other exciting pieces. Um, one on Taiwanese military power and sort of what, how well would Taiwan be able to defend itself against the Chinese attack. Uh, we've got an article about Narendra Modi and the BJP looking towards uh, India's elections next year and whether Modi can kind of keep winning. And then finally, uh, uh, an article that I really, really love because I also edit our Oceania section that sort of shines light on Pacific Island diplomacy. So Pacific Islands have the same problem as Central Asia sometimes where we only talk about them in context of larger powers. We never really talk about their internal politics with each other. And so this focuses on sort of intra-Pacific island diplomacy.
0: Well, terrific. I'm sure uh, our listeners will be intrigued to peruse this issue. And you should really uh, subscribe to the magazine if you haven't already. There's a lot more great content there that you won't find on the website. Good um, Good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And I will also remind listeners, since this is a new thing, that I've started writing a newsletter, uh, and uh, certainly we um, I, I did actually discuss uh, some of Katie's earlier reporting on the Cossack uh, trial in the newsletter. So if you want a sense of some of the geopolitical topics that you should be paying attention to in non-podcast form in your email inbox, definitely do uh, try to subscribe. Uh, you can get to that at diplomat.substack.com is where you can subscribe to that newsletter. Anyways, um, thanks a lot for listening to the podcast. And if you haven't subscribed yet on iTunes or Google Play, please do so. And if you have subscribed but you haven't left us a review, please do that as well. Uh, as far as I know, we're just about over 100 reviews on iTunes. So if you want to help us get over that hump, that would be really cool. So thanks a lot for listening. And I'll be back next week with more.